Hey, Rockheads, if you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about in-service bus, we got some good news. NSBCon's coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. Two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oranini, Ted Neward, and .NET Rocks is going to be there too. Not only that, but we're extending the deadline. Register before August 31st and get two days of video from Udi Dahan's course free. These videos will teach you about messaging patterns, where and when to use buses and brokers, and the right way to go about service-oriented architecture. These videos usually cost over $1,000, but we oh-so-gently twisted Udi's arm so you, our loyal listeners, can get access to the very best, but only if you register before August 31st. So join Richard and me in NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to nsbconnyc.com and register today. .NET Rocks, Episode 1018, with guest Rick Strahl. Recorded Monday, July 21st, 2014. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Kyle and Richard, and uh, Rick Strahl is here. He hasn't been here in a long time, years actually, but uh, we're looking forward to catching up with him. How are you doing, Richard? Get ready for this. TechEd is dead. The new conference is the Unified Microsoft Commercial Technology Event. What? So <laughs> Microsoft has decided to combine TechEd, the Microsoft Management Summit, the SharePoint Conference, the Link Conference, Project Exchange, like all these different shows. They're going to combine them all into one show. Does that have an acronym that you can actually remember? No. Unified, what is it again? <laughs> Unified Microsoft Commercial Technology Event. You can't make um, this stuff up. There you go. So that's that's what's happening. I know I'm excited. Oh my god! The big thing is that it's in May in Chicago, which oh. is unusual. Wow! So there you go. I'm going to refer to it as the conference formerly known as TechEd because it worked for Prince. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're going to like uh, my better know framework today. All go right. ahead, roll that music. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? I have a joke, and don't worry, it's clean. Oh, and sure. I'm sorry for the inappropriate joke last time. I didn't give anybody any warning. And, you know, <laughs> jokes sometimes are inappropriate. And, you know, especially if Michelle Arubustamante is on the show, just saying. Just saying. Anyway, Richard, this is a joke that you're going to participate with me in. Okay. All right. Now, I found this on uh, Stack Overflow, and uh, it's a visual, but you and I can reenact it. All right, now, Richard, you are a DOS prompt. Okay. A C prompt, right? A command window prompt. And I'm blinking. You're blinking. What I say to you, I want you to respond as if you were the operating system. Okay. So when I say to, you know, if I say CD slash whatever, you know, you give me the appropriate response. Right. All right, you ready? Okay. If you're happy and you know it, syntax error. I don't know what to say. <laughs> the appropriate response is syntax error. I guess. <laughs> you ready? Let's do it again. All right. If you're happy and you know it, syntax error. Syntax error. If you're happy and you know it, syntax error. Syntax error. If you're happy and you know it and you really want to show it, if you're happy and you know it, syntax error. Syntax error. <laughs> wow. 
That's awesome. <laughs> Come on, that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad the computer sang along. That kind of makes me happy. Syntax error. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's oh, like, what's a DOS prompt? I'm not sure I get this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know how much I know about that framework, but yeah. there you go. All right. Well, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 997, the one we did with Corey House. We were talking about his real-world single-page app, the, the auto industry one. Okay. And this comment comes from uh, C. Kichi, who says, uh, I really enjoyed the episode, and I don't think it was intentional, but I feel there should be some clarification around AngularJS support for IE. Okay. To summarize, what was said was that Corey didn't want to use Angular on his project because the framework is dropping support for IE7 and IE8 in the next minor version of the framework, which is uh, Angular 1.3. But Angular 1.2, the version that everyone uses and most people love in the framework, still supports back to IE7 and is being patched and supported by Google. And 1.3, as of this moment, which is, you know, the June time frame of 2014, hasn't been released. Mm -hmm. I know it will be eventually. And to his point, people could come away from the podcast saying that I need back-level IE support so I can't use Angular when it is absolutely a valid and supported choice, just not in the versions of the framework being released later on. Mm -hmm. And AngularJS 2.0 is a ways off yet. So there's documentation for this. It's all supported. And Corey House, being the good guy, he has also responded to the comment saying, yeah, you're right, this is completely correct, and uh, I should have clarified it in the conversation. Well, it happens sometimes. Well, and it just, you know, that's the great thing about open source frameworks, right? You can just keep using 1.2 if you need to support IE7. But if you uh, are able to go IE9 above, then the newer bets are available to you that, that focus on that. Yep. And thanks for the clarification. And Mr. Kichi, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as those that appear on this show. They release dozens of new courses every month and still offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access with a wide range of training topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything on the Microsoft stack. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Rick Strahl. Rick is the big kahuna and janitor at West Wind Technologies, located on the beautiful island of Maui, Hawaii. Between windsurf sessions and spiky-haired adventures, Rick has been a software developer for over 25 years, developing business and web applications since the very early days of the web when you needed a hand crank or a pair of wire splicers to get online. Nice. <laughs> Today, Rick builds client-centric web apps and services for customers with HTML5 and JavaScript and mobile web technologies using AngularJS on the front end and the ASP.NET stack on the back end. Welcome, Rick. Welcome back, should I say. Yeah, it's been a while, huh? When was the last show you were on? I didn't look it up. Um, God, I don't know how long ago it was, but I remember it was jQuery and I was in Europe at the time. <laughs> yeah, and jQuery was brand new. Yeah. June of 2008, show 351. Holy crap. Yeah, that was a while ago. So only 700 or 650 shows ago. 
<laughs> well, congratulations on your thousandth show. That was uh, it's a pretty big accomplishment for you guys. I would assume. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Although we we're a well oiled machine, you know, things just we just sit down and talk now, and it's great. Yeah, it looks like it. It's awesome. So, what have you been working on over there in Hawaii? Well, I've been busy just keeping up, you know. Um, when it comes to web technologies, things are changing so rapidly these days that it's um, it's almost a full-time job just to keep on top of all the different technologies. I know where we can start. Let's start with Rocky Lotka. He uh, came on the, our, our sister show, The Tablet Show, which we, we're not doing anymore. We're now doing these shows on Wednesdays. And um, basically said... You know, this was before Xamarin or before the native story was really great in the .NET world. He was basically saying that he thinks web apps will be the dominant technology, web technologies, in the business, in the enterprise world, um, simply because of the, the single code base and all of that stuff. And now that he's, you know, into the uh, Xamarin Xamarin Forms, you know, complete C-sharp and, and XAML uh, solution to all these cross-platform native apps, he's really changed his tune, and um, he's not, not quite sure. We were just talking to him about that. So in the enterprise, that's one thing, but certainly mobile web apps are, are not uh, – we're not saying they're dead, of course. He's not saying that, but he no longer thinks that web technology will be the dominant – uh, platform for the enterprise. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think it has some very good points there. Um, right now, it certainly looks like apps are winning, right? I mean, if you look at how we use our phones or tablets for the most part, um, it's not so much through the web. We use the web for browsing, for just accessing regular content, but for typical applications, it looks like at the moment we are more or less uh, depending on apps to do the things that we do with our devices. But at the same time, I think it's kind of a shame because as um, Rocky originally pointed out, uh, it's a, it's a big task to build these mobile apps for all platforms. You know, you have cross platforms issues um, and you have to rebuild these applications for each one of the platforms, mm. even with tools like Xamarin, which takes some of the sting out of it because you can share some of the code across these platforms. You still end up having to write some platform specific code, at least for the front end pieces. Sure so no matter, no matter what you do, you end up writing code that is specific to the platform at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And even with something like Xamarin forms, you know, if you want to access the, the sensors on the device, you're going down at the device level. You might be in C sharp and that's great, but you're using an API that's specific to that native platform. Same as if you were building a Windows app. Right. This is the same battle we have on the website anyway. You still see if IE code and if Chrome code and if Safari code. Well, I think there isn't so much of that anymore. We're going, getting far, far away from that, especially if you're using, uh, you know, modern technologies. Assuming you're not going to go down all the way to IE7 and below, um, I think a lot of that goes away. Actually, IE8 probably. So if you're looking IE9 and forward, a lot of that, if this browser then do this, if that browser do something else, that all goes away. But at the same time, when you get down to web technologies, unfortunately, uh, so, sorry, mobile technologies, you, you start having these issues again, not so much for the browser, but for the actual platform. 
So if you want to, for example, um, within a mobile application, go in and access, let's say, the SMS and actually pre-format a message to be sent to an SMS editor. Uh, you know, the, the actual way that you do that on different devices is actually different. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to still check to see, am I running on iOS? Am I running on Windows Phone? Am I running on an Android device? And you have differences there as well. You do see that. You do see those compiler directives, even in Xamarin's demo code, you mm -hmm. know, that just sometimes you have to do that. Yeah. I find the same thing with web apps, too. I mean, there are some things that you can write for um, a mobile web app that work just fine in Chrome that don't work well in IE. And we're talking on a phone. So if I pull up a mobile website on, you know, an Android phone or an iPhone, it might look great. But on a Windows phone, it might not work at all or vice versa. I mean, those are there are still those things that, uh, in, you know, some of it is, oh, you're just not writing it correctly. But um but, you know, therein lies the problem. You want to be able to write it. And if it works on one, it should work on all. Yeah. I think we're, we're getting closer to that, but we're still not all the way there. And I think that's, that's part of the problem that we're facing right now on the web is, um, you know, we have all these different technologies that are just starting to come together. But I think we're just like still a little ways off from that nirvana where everything just works. Um, and that's, at almost all levels, if you look at it. Uh, so that's at the HTML level. So that's talking about the different browsers being compatible. Then at the OS level with the different mobile devices and the actual backend services that are available on, on the various browsers. And even the backend technologies, when you look at uh, JavaScript itself, you know, there's like ECMAScript 6, which is coming out, but which is still kind of a long way off before we can actually use it and it makes it into all browsers. Mm -hmm. So there's all this cool technology that is there, all these specs that are defined, but the implementation phase, we're still not all there. So it's just a little short, I think, of being uh, the, the solid platform that I think it can be eventually and eventually will be. I do think that in the end, um, the web will win out. It's just... You know, just like it did on the desktop, eventually people will realize it's just an easier way to get applications onto devices than having to go through the pain of building cross-platform applications for each individual platform. Yeah, the other trick here then is failure modes. Like, I know what drives me mental in building web pages is the interpretation of CSS styles different from one browser to the other. And you literally have to look at each page in each state to understand how it's failing. Although I've seen that in a Xamarin app, too, where it just didn't render quite right on an Android device. Mm. Yeah, this stuff is complex. Yeah, no matter if we're doing web apps or native apps, you're right. going to run into these complexities. Right. And I mean, you know, that's just the nature of what we're dealing with. We're actually dealing with three different platforms, you know, on, on the mobile devices, at least. Yep. Or there could be more if you count, you know, the smaller platforms. So it's it's like trying to say, well, can we get this application to run on Mac and Windows and Linux? And you know, uh, in the past, that's always been a struggle for, you know, cross-platform solutions sort of did, but it's the lowest common denominator, or you build for the individual platform. The difference is that here, um, you know, with Android and iOS, at least, where there's much more of a split in terms of um, the, the market that you're reaching. It used to be with Windows, it was an easy choice because it was 90% or 95% of the market, mm. right? So if you develop for Windows, it was an easy choice. Well, we can live without supporting the other 5%. 
But now, if you're building a mobile device application, you pretty much have to, uh, at least if you're building it for the public, you have to support at least iOS and Android, and hopefully also Windows Phone, although, you know, that's a small percentage as well. Rick, can we talk about the viewport meta tag? Sure. And how people have used that before, you know, to sort of scale content for mobile apps? Okay, so the viewport tag uh, in mobile web uh, applications basically forces the viewport to a fixed size. So by default, if you load a web page into a mobile browser, what it will do is it will try to scale it. So if you take a desktop-sized page, it will load it and make it fit somehow. So it will come up in its full resolution, and then you know, somehow it will make it fit. So a lot of times when you go to web pages that don't use the viewport, you'll see very, very small text and you have to uh, kind of pinch zoom out in order to actually read the content. So what the viewport tag says is, um, so there's a device width that you can set, either it's a fixed width or um, you can set a specific width or a multiplier of the fixed width of the device. You basically tell it stick to this size and then always stay at that size. So you can't actually pinch zoom out to force the browser out. So what that does is it gives you basically a fixed size view that is always the same. So it's always whatever the native resolution of the device is. So that's if you set the initial scale to one. Correct. Meta name equals viewport content equals initial dash scale equals one. And that means that if you're on a desktop, you get one times scale, which is really no change. And if you're in a mobile app, it scales to the size of the screen. Correct. And it will stay that way. So you, yeah. when you build a mobile application, you don't want to bring the thing up in a, you know, in, in 900 by whatever the default width is. Rather, you want it to be native sized, which is, you know, depending on the device, typically 320 by 480. Mm. That's what it scales to on a, on a uh, mobile device, typically when you use scale of one. Yeah. And so the idea is there that you have a fixed viewport and you know exactly how big it is. And so when you throw in responsive rendering from, say, Bootstrap or something, it knows how to, to stick to that frame and not expand text out beyond that frame. So there's no zooming around to find things. You would think that that would just be default, you know, because you hit it from a desktop and it looks the same and you hit it from a mobile and, you know, without that tag, it looks like a desktop app on a mobile screen well the problem is that if you have a page that isn't optimized for this um it just doesn't fit okay. you know so if you if you take a standard web page and you try to load it into the browser that way i got gotcha. it just you know everything will scroll off to the side and you'd have to you know move back and forth with your finger to get to it right so in other words you have to have used you know divs and and spans and things like that that aren't fixed size Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, this is where responsive design comes in, where basically uh, either uh, your own CSS or a framework like Bootstrap helps you to keep things in within a fixed size that it knows uh, how to deal with. And so that's that's what the viewport tag really does. It just constrains the viewport to a fixed size and doesn't let it extend outside of it. So that's sort of like, uh, um, you know, responsive design 101 right there. There's your tip for today, folks, the viewport tag. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now, of course, it's not just that simple. You have to, uh, as we said, you know, not use any kind of pixel widths or anything like that. You have to, you, you know, being responsive means being percentage driven rather than pixel driven. 
And I think, I mean, the key for this to work really is, uh, I mean, unless you, you are really, really good with CSS, my suggestion for anybody attempting this is just to use a framework of some sort that does it for you. Yeah. Because this stuff is hard. I mean, it is really, really hard to get it right. Um, if you do it by hand, you know, you have to deal with, uh, media queries to get the, the sizing right for the smaller sizes. And you have to get the percentages right. You have to understand all the little quirks mm. of uh, the different browsers, the the custom CSS tags that are um, browser specific, for example. Yeah. yeah. If you really want to understand how hard this stuff is, open up bootstrap.css sometime and take a look at all the little details that it takes care of for you. I opened up bootstrap CSS min once and I couldn't read any of it. I don't know why. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I really got to get smarter. <laughs> that's just an easy one. Man. I'm that's, sorry. I couldn't that's help. funny. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny right there. So I think there's, there, there's what, coming back to the original premise that you made, whether we should be building um, native applications or we should be building mobile applications. I think right now there's pretty much still a toss up between it. And I think that um, the mobile platform is actually plenty capable to build business applications uh, using mobile web. I mean, business applications typically don't need access to all the device APIs. Mm. You know, if you need access to geolocation, that's available and that actually works really, really well, mm -hmm. which is one of the APIs that was implemented very early and it, it works universally across browsers nowadays, right? It's kind of a mystery to me why we're still stuck in this world where all these other APIs aren't implemented. I mean, there is actually specs for them and they've been around for a long time. It's just that the browser vendors uh, for the mobile devices have not decided to implement them. Mm -hmm. Right. So there is, you know, um, things like media capture and streams so that you can actually control the camera and control the video camera and the microphone. But it's implemented only by Chrome or Firefox, I think. And then iOS, nope totally missing IE, has no support for it whatsoever. Uh, same with a whole bunch of other APIs. You know, or things like access to the SMS manager or the contacts manager. There are APIs in the mobile device APIs um, group that actually describe how to do this, but there is just no effort being made, it seems at the moment, for the browser vendors to implement this. And I think part of this is because um, the mobile device vendors there, they want to keep the cash cow that is app stores, right? I mean, it's making them money and it's basically device lock-in for them, right? So if you develop an application for iOS or Android, you're going to have to put a fair amount of effort into it to develop it. And once you're there, you're not going to just throw that away and build an HTML app to walk away from it. You're going to keep updating that app as new versions come along and whatnot. Before we go any further, I want to tell you that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at dnsimple.com, simplifying the process of registering domains and providing headache-free DNS services starting at just $8 a month online at dnsimple.com. And they're awesome. And they're awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you use dnsimple, Rick? I do, actually. And as a matter of fact, it's because of you guys. <laughs> it's not awesome. Ah. Yeah, I switched about a year ago, and it's the most awesome thing ever. <laughs> and you, to the whole show's point, works brilliantly on a phone. Yes. Yes. You know, like, yeah. you've hit pretty hard on this whole issue of building good web responsive pages is hard to get it right. to. I've seen it where it worked on this phone, didn't work on that phone. 
And I feel like the, the phone manufacturers themselves are just holding back on updating these browsers. Yeah, and it, it's really, really a shame if you think about it. I mean, um, I've built a number of applications in the last year that were just really nice applications. They were a pleasure to use. They were smooth. The UI was um, responsive. I mean, responsive in terms of performance. And you can do some really, really cool stuff with HTML. And I think personally, you know, that uh, using HTML and JavaScript is a lot easier, especially since you only have to build it once as opposed to building these apps that have to be installed in app stores. You have to go through the process of getting a certificate for each one. You have to go through the approval process and whatnot. An HTML-based application just runs on the web like any application, and that is in my view, uh, a big winning point towards building HTML applications. When you want to update it, you update the backend and it just runs. Yeah, and you're done. The rollouts are a lot less painful. What about the revenue models? Are, are, are you just dealing with corporate apps so you just don't see that as an issue? Yeah, well, that's that's one thing right there, yeah? So the revenue model, of course, um, if you do want to make money with the App Store, where is that money really coming from? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, 99-cent apps uh, don't are not going to make anybody rich unless you're selling, oh, you know, some somebody builds a home run, basically. Yeah, unless you're writing Angry Birds. Yeah. but And we've recently done shows with, with guys like Atlee Hunter who said, like, you can't sell a 99-cent app anymore. You got to make the app free and then have in-app purchases to make money. And I don't see how that would be impaired by a web model at all. Yep. No, exactly it. And so the other thing is that if you are building an in-app purchase model, it still has to conform to the app stores, right? I mean, they don't let you just do anything there. You actually have to have, it has to follow certain guidelines and whatnot. So you're actually restricted in what you can and cannot do. Um, whereas if you build a web app, you can do whatever you want because it's just a web app, essentially. So I think the biggest holdbacks for HTML-based applications, mobile applications on mobile devices, is essentially the app stores themselves is what makes mobile applications or mobile apps more prominent right now. Because it is just so much easier right now, at least, to find applications and get them onto your device and work the way you expect them to work. Um, with HTML applications, I mean, the process of actually finding the applications, if you're building an open application that's not necessarily internal, um, is a lot more difficult. I mean, there's no single place that you can go to find me a mobile app for, you know, whatever you're looking for at this point. You, you can go to Google and search, but more than likely, you, you don't know whether you're finding a mobile link or you're finding a general web link. So there is no infrastructure in place right now. And I think that's the biggest detriment right now to HTML mobile web applications in that it's not easy to actually get find what you want and then get these applications to actually be highly visible as part of your mobile app experience. You know, I think I'd argue the other side of that too, Rick. It's If you're in the Apple App Store, dude, there's a million apps in there. You can't find anything. You know, you can't promote anything like it's it's just as messed up as the web is. But you know what? That's that was always the case for the web as well. Just because you have a website doesn't mean people are going to see it. It was that way in the beginning of the web because there was only so many websites out there. And just with the apps, it's the same way. Right. What you need is a Google for mobile apps at each app store. You know, you need something that powerful at each app store. I would actually argue what we need is a, a, a repository for mobile applications 
we need like a, a, a central place where we can actually register applications that says, you know, this is what it is. Here are the keywords, you know, kind of like a chocolatey for mobile apps. Hmm. So that you actually have a way of finding these things that are mobile specific, right? Because uh, applications are different. And um, right now on the web, I mean, if you actually look around, the content that is mobile ready is probably a very, very small percentage. I would say probably right. 10% or less. Everything else is still, you know, whatever old stuff is there. And if you do a regular Google search, finding the mobile stuff as opposed to the non-mobile stuff is very, very difficult. There's no way to differentiate right now. The funny part is I find really old web pages like HTML2 style pages render great on phones. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Because there's nothing, you know, there's no, there's no, um, layout in there basically. Yeah. Right. It's just plain text. Um, it's, it's basically a word document. <laughs> what do you think the possibility is of, you know, the Google with their Play Store and iTunes actually opening up their, their repositories to a, you know, sort of a universal searchable app store? I think it's pretty slim to none. Yeah, I would agree with you. But I kind of am surprised that Microsoft hasn't taken that opportunity. I mean, Microsoft has nothing to lose, right? I mean, they're, uh, as far as mobile devices go, they're a distant, very, very distant third. It's like, why hasn't Microsoft taken that opportunity to push in that direction? Because that would be a differentiator that would actually could be potentially an extra big bullet point for actually choosing Windows Phone to run your applications from. Yeah, I mean, I could see that backfiring as well. You know, the, if they if they invite everybody else to the party and nobody else shows up, if that's what you're suggesting. Yeah, there's a possibility of that. But I would guess that um, it might drive forward the idea that we could have some sort of repository that actually pushes HTML in a new direction. Yeah, because, I mean, clearly something is needed to, to kind of... Uh, change this gridlock that we're in with mobile web applications at the moment, I think. Um, again, it's not the technology. Well, part of it is the advanced features are the technology, but for the basic technology, and especially for business applications, I, I still think that the mobile web is just a better choice. Yeah, I wonder if there's a curation opportunity here, like somebody building. I mean, in the end, what, what I like about app stores is they, at least the good ones anyway, are curated, that they've evaluated the app, they've made sure it hasn't got a virus or anything, any malware in it, that it complies with some sense of UI standards and so on. You know, I'm with you, Rick, that there's all these sites that, that may think they're mobile ready till you actually go there with a mobile device. Actually having a place that says, here's a list of decent mobile apps and, and yeah. you know, can have some way to help us sift through them. I, I think maybe there's an opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about that, but I mean, in order for that to really take off, I think it needs to come from some entity that is uh, recognized. You know, you can't yeah. just, it can't just be, you know, somebody who starts a startup and, and has a repository. I don't think that will ever take off. It'll, it would have to be from somebody like Google or Microsoft, probably Google or Apple or somebody uh, on that level, because otherwise uh, it, it just is not going to get traction, I think. Well, Richard, you know what time it is then. Must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time for me to upload a cross-platform App Store app to every platform's App Store. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Yeah, no, my head's hurting now. Yeah. Ah. Don't stop it. Rejected. Rejected. Nice. Rejected. Denied. Denied. What are you, crazy? <laughs> 
No, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft bundle to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club right now. But before I tell you who today's winner is, supercharge your .NET productivity with Telerik DevCraft. This bundle includes over 420 UI controls for all .NET technologies, including ASP.NET AJAX, MVC, and WPF. Plus, you'll also receive Kendo UI and productivity reporting and debugging tools. Telerik DevCraft comes with three upgrades per year and Telerik's industry-leading support. So download your free 30-day trial today at Telerik.com slash DNR dash DevCraft. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Stefano Cascarini from Oxfordshire, UK. Nice. Congratulations, Stefano. Golf clap for you, sir. Got oh, the, I hear clappers. I got the clappers. <laughs> and uh, Stefano just won a DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and uh, we give away stuff like this on every show. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club, Rick, we did not have this the last time you were here, so you've never answered this question. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I have everything I need, man. Okay. <laughs> All right, so you could take the Robert Scoble answer and say, uh, I'll donate it to a charity. That would be no, really- no, 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 no. That's just too <laughs> that's hippy, crazy dippy. talk. That's just hippy dippy <laughs> stuff, you know. <laughs> what about a surfboard? There you go. Yeah, that's not very technologically. So, I mean, just just to kind of clarify, I mean, uh, you know, when I'm not sitting in front of my computer, I'm not much of a gadget guy. So, mm. for the most part, I kind of turn off. So, my activities do go outside. So, maybe, uh, maybe I can think of a couple of things like a drone or something, flying a GoPro around and following me around, you know, as I go windsurfing or something like that. I think a, a <laughs> drone on the sea is a bad idea. What do you think? Uh, I've seen lots of footage of people doing it, but I suspect there's a few GoPros at the bottom of various <laughs> rivers and things. So, so I've actually seen them out uh, windsurfing at some point, but I think uh, they're flying them pretty high to keep them away from everything. But it's the wind that's the problem. Yeah, the wind. Yeah, uh, basically. It, you know, I, I've heard, though, that they are staying pretty stable when they're... Um, the, the computer controls it pretty well. So the footage that they're getting, even the high winds, is fairly stable, which is really surprising, actually. So awesome. Yeah. You know what I haven't seen yet is a drone, you know, a quadcopter that will simply follow you. The, nobody has to fly it or anything. It's like, you're on me. And then off you go in the water. And this thing will just keep the camera on you. I've thought about that, Richard. I've thought about how to do that um, with uh, near-field communications. With, uh, you know, RFID sort of amplifiers and with, uh, or maybe even visual um, recognition, you know, optical recognition. But it involves putting some sort of uh, Netduino or something on the, on the camera and then broadcasting, you know, in, in, through Wi-Fi or something. I would guess that some future version of the GoPro is going to have something of that in it. It's got to. Yeah. It's got to. Somebody's going to come up with that. I mean, because right. that's such an obvious thing, you know. 
Um, but it's got to be small enough so that it can actually go onto something like a drone and not have a, <laughs> you know, a net we know or art we know is going to be probably too heavy to put on a drone at this point. I think it's certainly going to revolutionize the amateur music video on YouTube market. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it just takes the selfie to the whole other level. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> but, you know, then there's two pieces of this. One thing to keep the camera on the target. Mm. It's another thing to keep the device from colliding this, this stuff as it's trying to keep the camera on the target. Right. Like, what happens when the guy goes through a door? Yeah. Oh, yeah. better yet, when you have like five people out windsurfing and everybody has a drone, we have maybe our <laughs> <That's right. laughs> drone, drone collisions. You're not necessarily <laughs> going to keep anything electronic on your person while you're surfing, are you? So it can find you. <laughs> yeah. It's a tough problem, but it's that's that's a fun problem. Mm -hmm. Really, yeah, interesting stuff. I wish that was my job to solve that problem. <laughs> All right, I, I want to jump back into this. And one of the things I want to ask you about was web surge. Have you really built your own last load testing tools? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I didn't intend to. It just ended up uh, that way, I guess. It was an accident. It was an accident, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was on a project with a customer uh, a couple of months back, and uh, we ran into a, a load problem with SQL Server, actually. Uh, we were running into deadlocks, SQL deadlocks, only right. under a under a fair amount of load. So we needed to duplicate that environment. We we're able to do it in production pretty easily, which was not <laughs> so good. Because <laughs> customers are a great load test source. Yes. Um, and so I started actually looking around for some load testing tools. It had been quite a while since I last looked. And um, I remember last time I looked, I didn't really have much luck finding stuff. And uh, as I looked this time, again, I didn't really find anything that wasn't super, super expensive or that was not just a pain in the butt to use. So mm -hmm. um, in the end, I ended up building my own. Um, there are good solutions out there, but either they're really expensive or they're built into Visual Studio. <laughs> which, <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Microsoft. Visual Studio load testing tools are actually really good. It's just that they sit within Visual Studio, so you have to have Visual Studio installed. And it's the higher-end SKUs. Yeah, it's so, the ultimate edition. Yeah, so it's really expensive. And uh, if you want to move this stuff around onto different machines to do the testing. So we actually ended up doing the load testing on uh, one of the servers in the data center to be able to generate enough load onto these uh, particular applications. And so it's really easy. All I have to do now with this application, this web search that I built, I can just install it on one of those machines and we can run or multiples of them and do the load test right from there. So it was super easy. Um, Basically, when it comes to load testing tools, the thing that I'm interested in typically is just being able to capture a few URLs and then play them back as easy as possible. Mm. And that's essentially what web search is. It's not meant to be, you know, a super high-end tool that, that does all the monitoring on the remote machines. It's just a tool to let you capture URLs very, very easily and then put a load on those URLs and run them against a, a set of URLs and play it back and give you simple information like how many requests a second it, does it take, give you a simple chart that shows you, you know, where are the spikes in performance, uh, what is the request per second over the whole run and whatnot. Hmm. So it gives you some simple information, but it's easy enough to do that you can literally be set up and running in like a minute or two. And that's really what I was after. And I couldn't find anything like that. So I ended up building my own and I've now made it available publicly. So if you go to west-went.com slash web search, you can find out more. 
That's cool, man. It so cool. you largely run the tests in the cloud to actually generate your load? No, well, it actually is a local tool. And uh, one of the reasons that I actually ended up building this is because the application that we were testing was sitting inside of a VPN. Right. And there was no way to use an external tool. And again, with the external tools, there's a lot of cloud testing tools available today. But um, when you actually figure out how much it ends up costing you a lot of time, it's really expensive because yeah. these tools generate a ton of traffic and they have to pay for their um, bandwidth that they use, right? So it's not cheap to use these online tools, especially if you're generating a huge amount of load. Well, it's also a question of how much load do you need and how you scale it up. I mean, most, most of the time when I've had tip over problems like that, it's not that much load. You just have to incrementally move it up so that you can see where the locks start to occur. Right. Exactly. That's, so that's, that's what we actually did. And, uh, it depends on the type of applications you're testing. So with web search, it's also really easy to test, um, you know, services. So services oftentimes, especially REST services or something on that order, they can generate, you know, thousands of requests a second. So, sure. um, you, you, you generate a lot of traffic very, very quickly. So I think one of the, um, tests that I do here locally generates something on the order of 15,000 requests a second. And, you know, that generates a, a boatload of traffic, um, both in the amount of capture data that you're capturing, as well as um, the actual uh, HTTP traffic that you're throwing on the network, if you're running it over the network. Sure. And I think one of the challenges I've always had when I've done load testing is uh, simulating latency. You know, because when you're testing inside of your own network, your, your ping times are three or four milliseconds. And that means you can exert a tremendous amount of load in a very small amount of time. You can hit a lot faster than the outside world can hit you. Sure. But I mean, a lot of times I find myself when I do load testing that uh, I want to find the breaking points of an application. Right. Right. So you you just keep inching it up until you hit that point where the CPU goes wild, right? Yeah. Or the divergent point where requests per second and transactions completed split apart. That's right. So you get you get to like 50% and, you know, there's barely a hiccup. It's just a straight line. And then you get to 60% or a little bit higher and all of a sudden the the, the, the line starts to hockey stick up, right? Yeah. It, <laughs> so it's almost like exponential at that point. Right, so yeah. usually what I'm after when I do my load test, uh, well, there's two scenarios. One is finding errors like that SQL locking problem. And the yep. other is, is finding the, the breaking points of applications. And I think those are the two scenarios that web search is trying to address it's not trying to be the end-all tool for everything it's just supposed to be very easy to use so that you can actually set up a test in minutes and be up and running so you can do it right away you know if you start a new application actually check your application what's the performance of this is it really slow fix it now rather than later right uh, and as you go on is if the performance starts dropping go back and rerun the test and you can see immediately what the problem is there so you're not trying to simulate production. You're just trying to exert enough load so you can A-B test. The, I changed the feature or try it again. Is it handling more load or less load? Yeah, exactly. Those kind of things. That's the yeah. A-B load testing. Yeah. And you, you can actually inject some latency. So there's the ability to say, you know, wait X number of milliseconds between each request that you fire. Yeah. So you can do that. But, you know, of course, that doesn't really reflect what a user does. But I no. don't think anything really does. So No, because humans mm -hmm. are weird, man. They do yeah. stuff. Yes, they are. You can't even imagine. Input is evil. <laughs> 
Let me get this straight. You're mad at my app because you opened four windows and hit refresh on them all at the same time. <laughs> How do you account for the guy that goes to lunch for two hours and comes back? Well, I have yeah. a delay. I have a delay option for that. <laughs> nice. Jeez. Yeah. Get halfway through a transaction, wait one hour, continue transaction. <laughs> I Next. love it. Yeah. I like the idea of a timeout. Hey, speaking of timeouts, let me just say right now, if you're an experienced developer or project manager looking for a change of pace, consider working with me and my world-class team at AppVNext, building the next generation Internet of Things and NUI apps. Are you in? Check out AppVNext.com, then go ahead and send us your resume. So where where is all of this taking you, do you think, in, in taking us as an industry? Where can you see the next big uh, watershed moment? Well, I wish I had the answer for that because <laughs> I think uh, where we're at right now is that we're kind of in this point before it all comes together. Hmm. Uh, you know, we're, I think that moment where everything starts to kind of gel together is, is ahead of us, but it's still a little ways off. Uh, as, as far as web technology goes. Mm. And you can see that at all ends. That's on the client side. It's also on the server side. Um, you know, with Microsoft, for example, you know, the ASPV Next initiative, you can see they're, they're seeing that, you know, the old way of doing things is kind of starting to break apart and mm -hmm. the new fresh start is kind of needed to, to be able to handle all the different, uh, technologies that are coming together at this point. So I think, we we just have to kind of sit tight for a little bit and deal with the inconsistencies that we have in all the technologies on the web right now. Um, and eventually, I think within the next two to three years, I think we're going to see that, you know, the technologies are coming and integrating better together so that you don't have all this mishmash of technologies that you have to deal with right now. Do you think any one of these players, and whether we're talking about ECMA or the, you know, the W3C... Um, or even the companies like Google and Microsoft, do you think anyone has a disincentive to bring everything together under one roof? I don't think the standards bodies have. I, th I just think they're too disorganized to get stuff done quickly. You know, I mean, they have a lot of different people in there and they're, I don't know, the process has always been really slow and it's, it's kind of a shame because a lot of these things that we need are there. But at the same time, you know, the technology needs some time to get integrated into all the tools. But it's still, it's it's kind of a mystery to me why some technologies haven't taken off a lot more than they have. Right. You know, I mean, especially if you think about companies like Google, for example, I mean, who are really focused on HTML and driving everything through the browser in the first place. Even they are kind of behind the curve when it comes to technologies, newer technologies. Like what? Well, I mean, I'm just saying like these APIs for mobile APIs, right? I mean, even Android doesn't support a, a bunch of these newer APIs. Right. Or if you, if you go use, um, tr for example, if you use uh, input type date in Chrome, have you tried that sometime? Not recently. You know, you, you click on the dropdown and it's just this hideous date picker, you know, it's like... <laughs> And the actual date display inside of that, inside of that text box, for example, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's super long and it, it doesn't look right. It's just really ugly. And you think to yourself, why are we doing this? I mean, this is a standard thing that everybody needs to do. And, you know, you, you look across other browsers. Firefox actually does a somewhat decent job of it. Uh, and then, uh, Internet Explorer doesn't support it at all, mm -hmm. you know. 
uh, and you just wonder why. I mean, this is silly, right? I mean, these are, these are things that we do on a daily basis, and nobody really stands to lose by not implementing that. Well, you know, we have a secret weapon, and that's Rob Eisenberg, who's now working on Angular. Uh, maybe he can <laughs> slap some sense into those guys, get them to play with everybody, because he knows all about that pain, doesn't he? Well, but it's mostly he he's probably focused on the Angular JS stuff, which is not directly related to the standards or the browser itself. Oh so. sure, I know, but they, they do have an incentive for everybody to play nice, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the the plethora of JavaScript libraries is starting to settle down now? It seems like Angular is kind of one. Well, Angular definitely is kind of at the top of the heap at the moment. And I can tell you the reason for it is primarily because it's one framework that you don't have to worry about so many other libraries to pull in, right? You right. Can- bring in Angular and it will do a whole bunch of stuff for you that you used to have to have 10 different libraries for. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, from that perspective, Angular is really quite spectacular. Now, you, Because, you know, six years ago, you were advocating jQuery. I just can't believe you flip-flop this much. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'll take that personally. Yeah. <laughs> six years ago. Man, how did yeah. that happen? But, I mean, think about that. Six years ago, um, you know, what would that make us? 2008. So yeah, in 2005, yeah. I think Ajax came along, right? And that's yeah. basically, I mean, Ajax officially came along, not counting the early IE days. Um, uh, Ajax came along, that changed everything, right? Yep. As soon as you could start pulling data into the client, all of a sudden we were all about client side and being mm-hmm. able to pull things in. So jQuery was kind of that first step. Um, consolidating all the browser differences into a framework that, um, different kind of framework that allowed you to manipulate the DOM consistently. And so that was our first step. And then the next step from there is, of course, to try to build something more of an application framework. So it's something that actually sits at a higher level. And that's really where I think Angular is or Amber or Durandal or whatever else there is out there. Um, these are higher level things that try to consolidate a bunch of the technology underneath it into something that is coherent and goes together. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where... Um, right now in the JavaScript world, at least, uh, that makes a huge difference in terms of being able to produce things more quickly than it used to. Um, keeping up with the JavaScript, um, changes is, is, is just intense. I mean, three months and everything changes, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. horrendous, actually. I mean, I, I honestly, I can't keep up. <laughs> it's, there's like, well, and I look at the story arc we have on the shows and it does seem like Angular has settled in. And the conversation about jQuery seems to have died down. Right. Well, I mean, jQuery's big benefit was, as you said, you know, abstracting away the differences in the browsers. And now pretty much since IE9, that those differences really don't exist. Right. So, I mean, jQuery is still useful, I think. I don't think it's gone away. Um, I mean, internally, Angular uses a jQuery Lite engine, so it actually right. has a bunch of the features of jQuery built into it. But I find myself, even with Angular applications, still using jQuery for a handful of things. A lot less than I used to, for sure. And, you, you know, using Angular, you want to use that declarative markup type of um, access where you use data binding as opposed to direct DOM access. But there is still a handful of things where jQuery is really useful for um, if you do need to manipulate something um, in the DOM yourself. And there's always a handful of things that I find myself having to do that way. And uh, the built-in jQuery Lite is, is literally really light. So I typically end up using jQuery anyway. Um, 
And jQuery too, I mean, a lot of times you still use jQuery components of some sort. And so that also forces the dependency in a lot of cases. Interesting. So I don't think it goes away, um, but I think it's much less um, focused at this point. You know, we're, we're moving away from that type of technology. Especially going forward, there's also going to be things like web components that are, uh, will allow us to build components that are actually abstracted from the, um, from the DOM itself so that you don't have to do the DOM manipulation. You can have your own private DOM that you can uh, essentially build up your controls with. And that's going to make things a lot better in terms of being able to share stuff out as opposed to jQuery components like we had today. Do you think we're going to get a new JavaScript that will stick everywhere? Uh, I don't think so. I think JavaScript is going to stick around. Um, I think the newer iterations of JavaScript, I mean, even if you look at ECMAScript 6, you'll see that, you know, there's a ton of improvements in there to the language itself. Um, it, it looks more like a real language as opposed to what it is right now. Uh, you know, you do get classes and you do get module support right out of the bag. Mm. And I think that's going to simplify things a lot and make it a lot better. I just don't think that there's a chance in the near future that JavaScript will get completely unseated. It's mm -hmm. just too deeply ingrained right now. Um, I mean, it is definitely the hottest area of development for, you know, both on the client and the server. If you look at all the Node.js stuff that's happening, I mean, that's where everything is kind of focused um, at the moment, I think. So seeing JavaScript go away, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I didn't think it would go away, and it's not really what I meant. I meant, do you think we're going to find... Uh, get a version of JavaScript, if you will, that is a uh, that fixes a lot of the nasty parts of JavaScript. You know, Doug Crockford talks about keeps the good parts and and allows us to um, you know allows older browsers to sort of take it in as a plugin kind of thing, or not maybe as a plugin, but as a as some way that they can utilize this, some way it can be backward compatible and forward looking at the same time. I wonder if we really need the backwards compatibility anymore. Um, I think that's slowly fading away to the point that it's really not an issue anymore. I think, uh, you know, all major browsers now actually have the ability to update themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I Internet Explorer is the last holdout, but even Internet Explorer is now not tied to the operating system anymore. Yeah. IE 11 runs all the way. Well, it runs on Windows 7. Does it run on Vista? Do you know? I don't, I don't know. I, I have don't know. no Vista machines. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's very many Vista machines anyway. No. But at the very least, it goes back to Windows 7, and we can assume going forward that Microsoft is going to allow newer versions of IE to run on older versions of Windows, which mm. effectively allows you to upgrade. So I think with that, um, all the major browsers uh, allow you to get the latest versions. And with that, we have the capability to not have to worry so much about backwards compatibility as far as it goes, I think. Okay. So um, ECMAScript is that forward momentum, I think, you know, so if you look at ES6, it definitely has a lot of improvements to JavaScript that I think if you come from a background of, say, C Sharp, um, that will feel a lot more familiar. And TypeScript is based on changes in, uh, in JavaScript for the next version. Oh, good. Well, I hope it's coming soon, the, uh, the great simplification, if you will. I hope it comes soon. Rick, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's always great to catch up with you at conferences and everything, and this was a real treat for me personally. Well, thanks, guys. It's always nice to talk to you and always nice and easy. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.